up who wants to die on today's episode we talked to Conan Neutron of Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends about Nick Cave this is the operative i'm your host chris williams Thank you for doing this. Yeah, uh, to start off, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do, that sort of thing? Sure. So I'm Conan Neutron. I do I do a lot of stuff, but I guess predominantly we're uh, here to talk about my primary creative outlet, which is known as Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. It's loud, weird, rock and roll. It's how I always describe it. Um, I seem to be utterly incapable of writing a conventional rock song I always like to throw things in that are a little weird or strange or unexpected in it uh, largely because I come from a more noise rock background and uh, more of like weird post-punk punk rock stuff uh, where you know my old band Replicator we would have crazy song structures that did like 17 things in one song just because we thought that was a good idea to do uh, so my approach to rock and roll is coming from that very idiosyncratic <clears throat> sort of like subgenre of subgenre of, of music, uh, and because of that, it seems to have its own kind of voice. Uh, at least I, or so I think. Uh, that I'm a huge fan of rock music as a pantheon. I think a lot of it's very conventional and um, predictable. So I guess you could say loud, weird, somewhat unpredictable rock band is, is, is basically my, my main thing. And I'm not someone that's usually in a lot of bands. I've only been in like five ever, mm-hmm. uh, but they tend to be very long lives. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, out of uh, those <laughs> bands, I think I am, I, I, like, I've been familiar with three. Yeah. And I you got believe, most of them. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I believe I've only known you through like one yeah. of them mainly so yeah replicators around um uh, about a decade but like uh as as a band like eight years uh, mount vicious wasn't around that long but we did a lot of stuff in the year that we were around mm. to the point that some people thought it was like a ziggy stardust style shtick mm. <laughs> i'm like no no it wasn't a shtick we just had like a horrific blowout <laughs> at the end of that band uh, and victor and associates was uh five mm. sure five years and then we're coming up on depending on how you count it whether it's from the first record or from the first show, we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the first record this June of 2019 for Conan the Secret Friends, which has ramped up live activity considerably since Tony and I have uh, been in the same state. Because, of course, you can see with the Secret Friends is that nobody lives in the same place. Live, there's, as you well know, <laughs> there are different lineups, different people that play live recorded it's always myself Tony Ash and Dale Cover uh, on drums <laughs> recording but the live situation we've had as small as a trio I think the record is eight people <laughs> um, at least two guitars you know we've had keyboards uh, multiple singers etc cetera, etc cetera. it kind of expands and contracts based on uh, availability and need mm-hmm. and because it's not always the same people playing it's incredibly confusing to people because they can't hold the idea in their heads that there could be two things at once mm. whereas it's very consistent recorded wise and uh, <laughs> it's just vacuuming intensifies yes. this is the title for this 
<laughs> um, but the like the recording is very consistent. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, which it, I'll come back to in a second. But the from the live perspective, the people that are asked in to play all bring something to it mm-hmm. that sometimes the set list will be tailored to that person's particular skills or um, like where they tend to shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the catalog now is deep enough that it's it's pretty easy to do that. So it's, I, I don't know if I coined it, but I certainly appropriated the term always different, always the same mm-hmm. because of that. Whereas anything coming on the Secret Friends, you know you'll see me, you know you see Tony, and then everything else is going to be maybe a pleasant surprise to you. Right. <laughs> or maybe an unpleasant surprise if there's somebody that you thought was going to be live band and they're not. And oh, yeah. You don't get to see them, but I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because ultimately, like, it's, you know, I didn't, and I didn't specifically do it just under my name. Because uh, first of all, that's arrogant as hell. In fact, the only reason my name's even in it is because I, I was already somewhat controversialized at the time, and... Rather than lean away from it, I kind of lean into it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think the secret friends part of the name is because of like how I tend to operate in some in a somewhat secretive manner because mm-hmm. I like surprising people about stuff. It's not a secret friend. Is I got this from a comic book. I thought it was the Max. Uh, it might not be, but like it's like the um, in high school when there's like the freak kid, the um, the drama kid, uh, the goth kid, or whatever that. You have like the jock that wants to be friends with them because mm. they know that they're cool and there's something going on, but they can't be seen with them, so they're right. like a secret friend. So that's the actual yeah. meaning of that. There is a true meaning, yeah, I mean, so. <laughs> which is better, I think, than just like, oh, it's they operate in secret. No, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> it's not that secretive. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the idea behind that is is basically not so much a band, so much as like a superhero team, like the Avengers or like right. X Men or something, like where, you know. Colossus isn't on every mission. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Beast hangs out over here sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's my per- my personal pantheon, anyway. Mm. So you wanted to talk about what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you wanted to, you, wanted that, to... you asked me what my name was, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we're off to a good start. <laughs> um, <laughs> say how long we got? <laughs> well, that's all we got time for, guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's uh, let's talk about uh, Nick Cave. Nick Cave is yeah. someone that, uh, for a lot of the the groups and artists mm-hmm. that I've talked to people about, these are all they they strangely all end up being uh, artists and musician musicians that I am familiar with, but mm-hmm. uh, I've never really done a deep dive, and Nick Cave is no exception to this rule. A huge, uh, huge, expansive catalog, too, yes. which can be daunting yeah. uh, for folks. Right. Okay. So for me, my first introduction to Cave is through um, his, his old band, The Birthday Party, which is to say that I worked at a record store, the fourth best record store in Berkeley, uh, Tower Records. And I've heard the the last Birthday Party record, um, the Mutiny Bad CDP. It's like two EPs put together. Literally, first song out of the gate. Uh, you have a, 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 a Nick Cave as a young man who just screams, "Hands up! Who wants to die?" Oh, and then this like drumbeat comes in, and I'm like, "Whoa, I'm in!" Is that Sunny's Burning? Yeah, Sunny's yeah, Burning. Yeah, that, that's the only birthday party song I know. <laughs> First song I heard from the birthday party, nice. and I was immediately like, "I'm fucking in." This, can I hear some of this? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. It's on your network. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Conflict of interest alert. Um, you know, I was immediately in, and then like went got all the rest of the birthday party records, 
Persian Fire, um, Junkyard, um, Hee Haw, which is another collection of the early stuff, and was just really blown away not only by the forcefulness of Nick's delivery, but the the um, very almost Southern Gothic allegorical aspect of how he approached <clears throat> lyricism, which was the kind of thing where like, okay, it's kind of like a weird scummy looking dude, so maybe some of it's autobiographical, but it kind of is definitely branching off into this weird literary area, which always, you know, being, before I got into music, I was really heavy into books, mm. Ooh, you know, <laughs> but, and comic books and stuff too, so like, I, I love any, anything along those lines, and then the guitars in the birthday party were just so unique, Roland S. Howard's one of my favorite guitar players, and <clears throat> it was just something where I never heard anything quite like it before, and then, you know, later on, I discovered, oh, there's all these bands that took that thing and, like, made their own thing with it, and that's awesome. And that's kind of a separate story. But, like, my first interaction with Nick Cave was from the birthday party, which is more, like, where... It wasn't where I was coming from at the time. I wasn't developed enough to do that. But it quickly became something that I wanted to sort of, like... I, I appreciated the moodiness of it. I, mm-hmm. I appreciated, like, the sort of world-building that happened... Uh, with the birthday party and frankly I you know, tried my best to unsuccessfully rip off Roland S. Howard guitar lines all the time <laughs> did a very poor job and developed my own style instead um, so that was with the birthday party which is my first experience and the first one was Sunny's Burning which is I, I think a lot of people's first birthday party songs was this still when the birthday party was around or no, no okay no. I mean it's yeah. like yeah, this is like 94 so this is okay, okay they've been yeah. gone I don't know, for, uh, 14 years or something okay. like that. Oh, all right. Yeah, and yeah. it's just because I worked at a record store, and actually, I just, I, I was like, oh, this looks cool. Like, yeah. the record cover looked neat. Mm. <laughs> and at the time, I was, like, discovering, like, the Stooges. I was discovering, um, you know, Big Black and, like, like, all these other, like, you know, very iconic bands and Chrome and, mm. the, and Buttle Surfers. I, well, actually, I already knew Buttle Surfers. But, see, for me, I grew up in Modesto, which... It's a cow town in the Central Valley of California, famous for Lacey and Scott Peterson. George Lucas went to high school there, and uh, Gary Condit and the main granddaddy. So half of those things are high pro- like high-profile murderers, and <laughs> the other are just have like these very kind of unique creative talents. Um, granddaddy was big in the UK for a while, and everyone would be like, "Oh, you're from Modesto? That must be so interesting." I'm like. No, <laughs> it, it really isn't. You know that song about drinking beer out in the country? That's just, that's not an affectation. That's just what they're doing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I didn't have exposure. Like, my exposure to music was limited to, like, what I found out either through, like, MTV and stuff, which is weird to think about now, mm. or just the records I liked, like, who was thanked on there and, like, discovering my own. Like, Nirvana, Beget. Sonic Youth and Melvins and Bubble Surfers and uh, you know Fugazi um, like I kind of had a weird pathway through into punk rock for that that I skipped most of hardcore mm-hmm. and like went straight to post-punk no, nice. and then kind of went back to hardcore like <laughs> afterwards but largely it was based on the fact that I worked at a record store listen to music I mean it wasn't getting paid anything but I worked at a record store didn't make any money but like I found immediately that I'm like oh I always used to trash talk country because I was surrounded by these you know shit kicking idiots 
shirtless in trucks yelling fag at people as they mm. as yeah. they drove by especially when i was on a date and they were shirtless dudes in a truck but <laughs> uh like i found hank williams senior and i found like merle haggard and like i was like oh there's really cool stuff and like all these genres of music i basically summarily dismissed because mm. i only heard like the worst representation of them but the stuff that appealed to me the most was the stuff that just basically sounded like it was flying out from pluto mm. which for me was you know stuff like the birthday party so my first introduction to Cave in the Bad Seeds, I was like, oh, hell yeah. I'm super stoked. Can't wait to throw this on. And it did not sound anything like the birthday party. And I was bummed out. I was so, I was like, what is this Neil Diamond crap? I don't know. I'm not for this. This sucks. Uh, and that was, whatever gear that was, was when Murder Balance came out. So I listened to that one a lot. And... I dug it because there were some more like aggressive sounding songs. Like Staggerly was on there, which is a, I guess an old blues song, but they had a really interesting like noisy approach to it, where it was like really very moody, slow, creepy builds on stuff, and then like real just like it's unleashed. I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. It really was challenging to me because it was a very intense song without being like you know all volume, all noise, all going. It was the first time I really had heard something like that that had menace to it. Mm-hmm. And that whole record, I mean, that record is a concept record, you know, about actual murder ballads, which is, it's, it's in the name. It's like Planet of the Apes, you know, if you get into it with the title, right? Uh, but I, that was inspiring to me too, to like, oh, to collect all these different kinds of songs under this banner mm. and this idea was very interesting because that was one of the first times I really thought about things in terms of like it being a fully actualized and realized concept. So I got into Murder Ballads, got into uh, Henry's Dream and Let Love In, which I think are also very well-rounded records. Uh, everyone knows Red Right Hand. It was in like a million movies in the right. 90s. Yeah. <laughs> like, we all know that song. But there's a lot of really good tunes. And there's some stuff that, you know, like, I love every tune. Like, mm. there's some tunes where I'm like, yeah, that one go away. Don't want it better to me. But what I found was interesting is Nick Cave is one of the first artists that I didn't have to love every song. Like, I had all the respect in the world for what he was doing because a lot of it was just this incredible, you know, uh, usually through allegory, but this building of this world that just, like, was so, like, you could you could just visualize as if it was, like, under a dome mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. And, as you know, this basically gets certain, certain tropes he revisits that tends to be, like, you know, somewhat dark. There's nefarious dealings going on. There's uh, complicated things with love. There may be tied in with drugs and stuff, which always never really was that of interest to me. But from an allegorical perspective, loved it. Sure. And the first artist that really that I was really into that kind of did that. I mean, kind of with David Bowie, but David Bowie was so detached about stuff it wasn't in the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the cave, it's even though like okay, it's very clear you're singing this as a character, but you're pulling from something of yourself to make this right. pop. Yeah. So I identified pretty heavily with that and found and, and then there was like a run of records that I just like did not care about at all where I'm like okay well I'll respect the Nick Cave but I don't got time to listen to that <laughs> and, there was, and and you know not to be a dick but uh, but that's cool too because I respect that like oh he wants to do like I'm at the piano and I'm sad and I'm writing songs right. I'm like oh, okay this time is a place for that you know it's, maybe it's not for me it seems seems like there's people that are into it <laughs> Well, what a lot of people did with Nick Cave is they sort of stereotyped him as like doing that one thing. Mm. And especially because like with the song Kylie Minogue sang on, it was like a huge hit, especially in like Australia and like in the UK. And everyone kind of was like, oh, you do this thing. Uh-huh. 
and no, they do a lot of different stuff. And what's interesting is that I think there's a whole run, there's a whole run of records that, like Abitra Blues and especially Dig Lazarus Dig, mm. that no one even looks at or listens to or has even heard. Like Dig Lazarus Dig is like the sleazy Vegas record. I well, love it. Which is weird because I, my experience with Nick Cave is going from like hearing the birthday party. Mm-hmm. Hearing uh, early Nick Cave, where it was more like just somber, whatever, yeah. and then modeling uh, and plotting, yeah, and, and then uh, um, dig Lazarus dig, and and so like, so you're like I feel like I feel like I missed a couple chapters, yeah, yeah, yeah. So w- whenever I touch on on Nick Cave uh, after a couple of years, I'm like I don't really know what Nick Cave sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it makes more sense in the context if you've heard Henry's Dream. Right, and yeah. If you've heard uh, Let Love In and uh, In Murder Ballads, you, you can kind of get a through line through it. And then there's a big one, like Avatar Blues has a big, like, like there's like a gospel choir on a lot of songs and stuff like that. And like, it makes more sense in terms of that. But I think if you really want to try to understand Dig Lazarus Dig, you have to understand Grander Man was happening at the same mm-hmm. time, which was his, sort of his return to incredibly unhinged like you know still moody but like you know post-punk as midlife crisis mm-hmm. <laughs> almost which, which fantastically done you know in the hands of a lesser artist would have fallen flat on its face mm-hmm. but Dig Lazarus Dig is like the um, like I said it's like the sleazy Vegas record it's like here's like the Vegas show version of like these you know dark southern gothic things yeah. like the, I mean the whole like the title track is like what if Lazarus came back but in the modern age and was like an Instagram star and stuff yeah. you know and that's like what a neat concept mm-hmm. and so I found that incredibly inspiring for someone that like is kind of not written himself into a corner necessarily but just an artist so far along in his career just do something so wildly different knowing full that that dude fucking loves like Neil Diamond and right. stuff Right, but it was done super well, and then with Warren Ellis as his primary collaborator, especially as McCarvey kind of took a bit of a backseat. Like, there's a lot of weird crap going on. That, mm. like, from a just songwriting perspective, it's like I don't know what that is, but that's a cool thing that's happening there. And like, that's the freak factor element of mm. it. So, I find that really inspiring because I like when an artist can continue to be good. But try different stuff and not have it be like these. I mean, I feel like the Ramones are the most overused example of this. But like Johnny Ramones specifically being, I'm not going to practice my guitar because I don't want to change my style. You know, like, okay, well, it worked out fine for them. Right. But most of my favorite artists, like Nick Cave, uh, you know, like Tom Waits, just are constantly just trying new stuff, trying to challenge themselves and try different things. So Dig Lazarus Dig was kind of an interesting like amazing late period record that I feel like didn't really get its due. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like the <laughs> the last two records, this is where a lot of people are going to be screaming at the recording. I don't like the last two records very much at all. Oh. To me, it sounds like records that were designed to be played through like a MacBook Air mm-hmm. with no speakers. And as a concept, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But they're very claustrophobic. But I just don't think the songs are that good. I think there's like two, the one before last... And nobody's going to talk trash about the last one because one of his sons died. Oh. And so that, like, you know, that's that. No one's going to be like, hey, this stinks. Right. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people think it's great. It's mm. just, but it's okay. It's not for me. Mm. I, I don't listen to it. I don't listen to it. It's, I, mar- I like it marginally more than when I first heard it, but I'm still, you know, I've got like a dozen records by him I can put on that yeah. <laughs> if I want you to listen to. But there is a couple really cool songs on the record before that 
that I just don't care for the recorded versions that much, but I've seen them play it live and it's like transcendental. Yeah. So, but again, he's in that, Nick and the Bad Seeds are in that rarefied air like Iggy or something where it's like, yeah, you know, sure, you wrote Butt Town, but <laughs> like, you also like wrote Funhouse right. and like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And like, it buys you a certain amount of goodwill in, in my mind if you like, I'm almost a fan of like the, the uh, creative face plants as much as the creative successes. And it was a, probably a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. But for me, I don't think you can push things forward and advance things if you don't swing for the fences. Mm-hmm. And you're not always going to connect. Right. <laughs> and again, to be clear, sometimes for, for you know, these last two records, they're very well loved. NPR loves them. You know, like all kinds of people are all about them. They're boring as shit. But that's fine. it doesn't matter right. for me because I've got all the love and respect for what he does and what they do together and how, this is where it ties into me, with the Bad Seeds, until so a few years back, it was always, since the birthday party, it had been Nick and McHarvey. Mm-hmm. Always McHarvey. Every, people had changed. Kid Congo Powers came in, came out. And, you know, Jim Scavenis came in and out. Uh, Barry Adamson. Like, the people, it would change as it went. It would kind of grow, expand, contract, change, et cetera, et cetera. But Mick was always a consistent element to it. Mm-hmm. And then... Warren Ellis sort of has supplanted him since then as like the the other consistent element, but by having that consistent element of a collaborator that's kind of been with you for this through line, mm-hmm. through this incredible, the very discography, it allows uh, an easier connective thread than if it's just one personality holding it down. Yeah. So in this situation, me being the Nick Cave of things that nobody cares about, <laughs> that's Tony Ash. Right. Uh, and like having him in Secret Friends, uh, you know, a couple of people have pointed out accurately how many of the songs are sort of written around the bass mm-hmm. and around Tony's. Ba- and and again, after the first record, which was just like, okay, let's let's see if this can even happen or be a thing. <laughs> uh, when I knew what it was, then I could like write to that. Mm-hmm. And I found it very easy to write to his you know, specific style and tie that in as like a connective thread element which makes the rest of it and the other elements coming in easier Mm -hmm. uh, to arrange and easier to like leave room for and easier to figure out like what makes each player what what, where each player shines Mm -hmm. at at what they do and again choose the songs accordingly and like let them bring what they bring into it but have that connective thread that there's always that you know Tony Tony Ash is my Mick Harvey Tony Ash is my Warren Ellis where McCarvey made Nick Cave better, mm-hmm. and Warren Ellis makes Nick Cave better. And by them being together, they're like there's even when it, the records don't sound that like, there's this through line to all of it mm-hmm. that like it, it makes sense. Yeah. As opposed to like, you know, um, Lou Reed or something, mm-hmm. where it's like some people will point to like, oh well, you know, after Stop Working John Cale, this and that, there's this record. That, yeah, but it's just it's just he's just. It's fine, but there's no, like, if the appeal is that it's 100% different, mm-hmm. okay, right. cool. I suppose there's a time and a place for that. I'm not here to, like, shit on Lou Reed's discography or anything. But for me, it's more fascinating when there is something where there's, a, like, a body of work with a connective thread. Yeah. And that's something I, when I made Secret Friends, again, when I first 
the first record i didn't know it was even going to be a thing i didn't even know it was going to be any good <laughs> uh my band at the time was on a <laughs> was on a hiatus that was basically the um you know why don't we try swinging trying to like save a bad marriage <laughs> situation a hiatus that 90% was not going to solve the problems of what that band had become. Mm. But during that time period, and one of the things that was causing conflict, when it came down to writing new stuff, they were getting more into the idea of jamming things out in the room, and I was getting more into the, the idea of like demoing things ahead of time. Mm. And I was fine with jamming the room, with I'm a terrible improvisational player, uh, but I was like, yeah, but let's record it and listen to it and pick out the good ideas and come back to those. But nobody wanted to do that. So it just was like, so we're just fucking around? Is that what we're doing? Because right. I have no interest in fucking around. Mm. I'm not interested in that. Anyway, so that was going on. Like, all right, well, let's just take a break and see if we feel the same way. There was other, like, personal stuff going on, too. But Because we had been a band for about five years. How should I put this? Victory and Associates never really hit its mark. We never really found it like an audience, which is kind of painful to say. But of all my bands, that's the one that's just, I don't know, for whatever reason, it didn't quite connect with people. Mm. But people were aware of it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, and it's, it's not like we didn't, we, we worked pretty hard. But, you know, sometimes stuff just doesn't connect. It's almost like, I think VNA would make more sense in Trump's America than Obama's America, too. But, you know, whatever. That was a, that whole band was a big swing and, you know, it was like a got got to first base and out at second. <laughs> um, as as far as the um, like, so you oh, said... so, so the first yeah first record. Oh, oh oh yeah. Doing the first record yeah. was just I I didn't I just wanted to write a record. I wanted like mm-hmm. I want to know if I can write a record on my own. Yeah. Period. And that's what the first record was. Uh, and then decided you know to put the band together. Had my list of like drummers to ask. First drummer asked was Dale, assuming he would say no. He said yes, that he loved the songs. I was as surprised as anybody. And so the first person I thought of was Tony, because I just really, I think he's a really good rock bass player. And these mm. were rock songs. Like, even more so, I think, than how VNA was. And then it just, it worked well. Mm. It worked really well. It was no drama. <laughs> Easy as hell. It was, you know, like, I had all t- lots of anxiety about it, because it was an uncomfortable way for me to to make it. I was used to like, you're a band, you write these songs in the room, you go out and play them all over the country and gradually all joy is sucked out of them and then you record them and then that's the record. <laughs> and this was completely different from that. So there's like sort of a fresh and interest and energy to it that, um, that people responded to. Uh, and, and that was, uh, you know, that was surprising to me. <laughs> but in a good way, like right. nice, a nice surprise. Uh, and then from there, I uh, conceived of Art of Murder as more of a fully realized piece, which is just its concept record about the world of Hannibal Lecter and the world around him. And we did that one, which I think is, frankly, a stronger record. But I had in my mind, while I was doing it, things like Murder Ballads, and specifically how, like, with the press and the world at large, a lot of times people can't hold multiple ideas in their heads at the same time so everyone goes oh Nick Cave he's just he's you know he's a murderer this and that it's like no he's singing he's not literally murdering people that's not a thing so I definitely had 
you know, I'm like, okay, there's songs about eating people and stuff on here. Like, you mm. know, what, you know, is this going to be something that like, will people understand that this is art and this isn't necessarily right. an autobiographical tale? One would hope so. Right. Uh, but as far as having the concept and articulating it and then having it come out and be like fully realized is something that, you know, I owe a lot of that to just these concept records in, in the past that I, that, I, that I loved and like seeing that you can land something like that. Mm. And you, if you do take those risks that sometimes it works and it pays off and people will, you know, buy the ticket and take the ride. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I think that's when, you know, all the crazy whack ideas that I've had <laughs> have kind of been a jumping off point because I, I just, I, I got a comfort level for doing, and again, just this learning that, you know, the songs get recorded and they're on a record and they sound great and they've never been played live. Mm -hmm. And that's just utterly opposite of how I had worked before. And now it's the only way I pretty much can work, yeah. which is bizarre because I'm, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm a songwriter now. And I didn't, that just happened accidentally. <laughs> Next time, we conclude our conversation with Tony Neutron about Nick Cave. The Operative is produced in conjunction with Radio Nope. For a full listing, go to radionope.com. <laughs>